What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On Monday, the world will honor the birthday of one of the greatest leaders of all time, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. For most of the masses, they will honor the king that has been whitewashed and sanitized, the king who said he had a dream where all of us would live in peace as one, the king who engaged in the tactic of nonviolent civil disobedience, the king who they say, believe like Jesus, if they hit you on one side of your face, turn your cheek and let them hit you again. What they will not be celebrating or honoring is the king who was a revolutionary a radical, the king who believed in interrupting business as usual, the king who had the courage to stand up to white supremacy no matter the cost, and who did ultimately pay the cost, the king who told the world that America was the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet, and the king who before he was assassinated said his dream had become a nightmare, and who had the organizing wisdom to align the oppressed and the poor along race and class and address what he called the triple evils of poverty, war, and racism. That made him a threat to the government and to the status quo, and he would then be assassinated for that aligning. I'm going to go ahead and bring on my guests. We are joined this morning by Malkia Devitt-Cyril, an activist, writer, and public speaker on issues of digital rights, narrative power, black liberation, and collective grief. Devitt-Cyril is also the founding and former executive director of Media Justice. Good morning, Malkia. Good morning. Happy to be here. Really happy to have you. We are also joined by Walter Riley, an activist, civil rights lawyer, and chair of the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund. His political organizing work goes back to the civil rights movement in the Jim Crow South. He is originally from North Carolina. Good morning, Walter. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Walter, I want to... Um, I want to start with you. Um, you've been an organizer for over six decades. You started in the South. You organized against Jim Crow. You were a member of CORE, uh, which did engage in the tactic of nonviolent civil disobedience. What did that look like in action, and was it a tactic that resonated with you? Uh, nonviolent disobedience was a tactic. Uh, the work that I did and the people I worked with in North Carolina uh, very clearly expressed that it was a tactic we considered the issue and said that uh, we wanted to uh, ensure that we were able to organize to desegregate uh, structural entities that, that needed to change. So what it looked like was us trying to um, move folks to change the laws. And um, it was an effort at desegregation to uh, end the separation of the apartheid-like system of separation that kept us out of jobs, out of certain education, and out of uh, certain um, establishments. Particularly, we organized sit-ins, we organized voter registration, and we organized campaigns for jobs by boycotting institutions that didn't hire black folk. And it looked like a fight against the system. And in those instances, Walter, moments where your nonviolence tactics were met with incredible violence, particularly in the South, yes? Yes, yes. Uh, some of the most visual things that people remember is the sit-in movements when we sat in. And I was an, an activist in the sit-in movement itself uh, as a very young person. And people would come and hit us and throw things on the folks who were sitting in. You've seen some of the... Um, 
crap thing thrown on people. You saw Martin Luther King being arrested, arms twisted. Um, police came and arrested folks at various times. Um, <clears throat> and those of us who were peacefully sitting in were, uh, after being attacked, were often uh, accused of, of violent assault. Uh, and the uh, attempt to uh, get people to vote, there were violent attacks. People were killed in various parts of the South, particularly. We remember the long stories of Mississippi. Um, and that happened in various places in North Carolina. People were attacked for attempting to vote. Uh, people lost jobs for organizing. Uh, there were violent attacks and people were put in jail. That was the nature of it. Uh, KKK organized, uh, White Citizens Council organized, um, government, city governments organized, sheriff's department organized and attacked folks. You know, I myself was attacked. Uh, and uh, at various times uh, with other folks. So that was the violence of the system at the time. And it's not so different in terms of uh, the way the system reacts to folks who are trying to make a significant change right now. We haven't had some gains, but there is still we still live in a violent nation. We still live in a nation that oppresses folks who are trying to make change and represses people who are organizing coming from a, a system uh, that, that needs radical change. Some of the things I remember about King is that I just, uh, one of the things that was so important in 1967, he's talked about the three evils. Uh, and I quote, again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew out of and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifices. Capitalism was built on the exploitation of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, black, both black and white, both here and abroad. Um, there are other more radical quotes in addition to that. Um, the evils of capitalism, that, that first quote was the three evils of speech, evil speech that was made in 67. And at another time, um, a quote from King's, one of King's speeches, his presentations. The evils of capitalism are as real as the evils of militarism and racism. We know the significant evils. The problem of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of the political and economic power. Uh, that's uh, his speech to the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1967. Uh, I think that uh, um, when we talk about what we ha what was happening in the civil rights movement and the attempts at folks to try and make change and the uh, way the uh, movement has been reimagined by uh, his, some historians and particularly some sections of our population as some group of people who were um, uh, mild and and mannered folks that wanted to uh, integrate has been distorted uh, from our actions of trying to desegregate, which is a little bit different from integration. I think is a lot different, significantly different from integration, but trying to desegregate the legal system of racism and exploitation. Um, and um, much of the media today still talks about that as an integration movement. And a lot of folks have not understood 
the significance of that struggle for structural change in America. Um, a bit not the kind of structural change that uh, we might need for the r radical redistribution of wealth in the society, but still a movement for structural change and a very necessary movement forward for uh, an oppressed group of people in this country. Um, you know, um, King talked wanna... about the militarization of this society. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I want no, you're good, uh, Brother Walter. I want to bring Malkia into the conversation, and actually, that last thing you said about the militarization of our society, um, Mac. Uh, you know, he, on August 28, 1963, King gave his "I Have a Dream" speech. Then, four years later, on May 8, 1967, um, a month after the Beyond Vietnam speech, he told an interview that his dream had become a nightmare. Um, what realizations had he made and what do you think he would say about his dream today? And specifically, I have been thinking about the fact that, um, you know, in the Beyond Vietnam speech, he's condemning the, the horrific war in Vietnam that America was engaged in. And right now in this moment, this country is funding and funneling weapons into a genocide. Well, let's be super clear. Um, first of all, it's wonderful to be on the line with, uh, with, with Brother Riley. I'm so grateful. <laughs> Um, but let's be let's be super clear, you know. Dr. King, while he was fiercely anti-Semitic, was also very clear, you know. Just uh, uh, he went he he planned a trip, you know, to to what, what is called Israel, and um, just before his arrival, he, that he planned, you know, Israel launched a six-day war against Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, right, and. They gain territory by killing thousands of, of, of Arab people. Um, this is when Israel laid claim to the entirety of Jerusalem, right? And that's when they seized the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and the uh, Sinai Peninsula. And um, at that time, you know, Dr. King spoke out. You know, he said in an interview, I think it was June 18, 1967, he said it would be necessary for Israel to give up the territory it had conquered, right, in order to, to um, as a tactic for its own safety. He understood then that this approach to, um, to creating safety for, for Jewish communities was not viable, that it was antithetical to his own aligned philosophy of, of, uh, against war, um, against oppression, and against uh, the, the broad effects of militarism. And so I want to be clear about that, right? There's these people who tell us that Dr. King would have been appalled by Black Lives Matter. They all, those are the same people that are telling us that he would have stood with Israel today. And I, and I believe very clear, look, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came out of Dr. King's civil rights movement and the Black Panther Party emerged from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And I know that the Black Panther Party was fiercely anti-Zionist. So what's, what's clear to me is that today, right, we have to place people inside of history. People don't stay static. Their words and their beliefs, though, that is what is a legacy is. And Dr. King's legacy was fiercely anti-Zionist, whether he what, whatever he thought about Israel at the, in, 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 the, in the decades directly following World War II, I, I, I know in my heart that he would say something uh, more akin to what he said in that interview today. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to ask you another question going back to the 
first piece of the conversation I had with Walter about you know nonviolence um, as as a tactic and the violence that that tactic is met with and six decades later and standing on the shoulders of folks like Walter we still ain't free and they the state and the white masses are still telling us to be nonviolent using often as you just pointed out the legacy or their version of the legacy of Dr. King well whilst at the same time our people continue to experience intense and unceasing amounts of violence at their hands what tactics should we be engaging in now? You know, um, what I love about Dr. King is that he was a believer in many tactics at once, you know, and I'm a believer of that as well. So I don't think there's a single tactic that will um, liberate black people in America or oppress people worldwide. We have to be open to a variety of tactics and those tactics have to be historically accurate and aligned. So at the time, Dr. King was responding to a culture of violence, right? offering, like, he was trying to offer not only a method of protest, but also a way to save America from the moral injury that was caused by its own culture of violence, right, against Black people. Um, you know, Dr. King said, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Okay. I believe that to be true today. I believe that, let me say this, I am, I am a believer in nonviolence, but I want to be clear that nonviolence ain't the same as anti-violence. I'm also a believer in armed struggle. <laughs> so mm -hmm. what do we need to do today? Well, Doc, we need to do exactly what Dr. King taught us to do. Number one, we need a deep legal struggle. We need a profound legal battle because we're going to, um, the way that the right wing in America is using the law to um, defame and, and deny the rights of, of queer people and trans people um, to remove black history from schools and curriculum to, um, you know, lay claim to the bodies of people who can become pregnant. Well, we also have a legal battle in front of us. So that's number one. Number two, and it's not just a legal battle to respond to those uh, legal claims, but it's one that should advance our goals of, of justice, freedom, and, and, uh, and to respond to the inequality that is a result of oppression. So legal struggles. Two, you know, we have seen the, the largest mass protests uh, in recent history, right, through through Black Lives Matter. But I, I, I have to say that worldwide, the, the protest for the liberation of the Palestinian people and, to, and for a ceasefire uh, uh, in the siege uh, of Gaza, that is, is, a, is a, maybe possibly the largest global protest that we've ever seen. The last time I saw something like that was uh, in the anti-apartheid movement. And so, you know, I think mass protest is also something that we need to, we need to build on. But, but most importantly, Dr. King was an organizer. He was a community organizer. And his method, right, even the tactic of nonviolence uh, was rooted in, the, in the, uh, the practice of community organizing. To do that, we need institutions. And we need institutions that are left and that have the power to withstand even the charges that are being leveled against us right now, right? These charges of anti-Semitism, even as we work to protect the rights of all people, Jewish people, Palestinian people, black people, poor people, immigrants, right? And so we need a left that is strong enough, that has enough strength to its institutions and enough strength of its values to withstand those kind of charges. So we need a, a plethora of tactics. And I, and I challenge anyone who sits up and says that one is better than the other because ain't nobody got free doing one thing. We need all the things. Mm -hmm.
All right, I've got one more question for each of you. Walter, when you hear that we want to uplift the radical legacy of Dr. King, what does that mean to you and how is that radical legacy reflected in your work today? Um, the radical legacy of uh, Dr. King is absolutely necessary for us to understand, appreciate the kind of work that has to be done today. Uh, he talked about the need for structural change in the society and what America had to recognize. One of his quotes that I have here is, white Americans must recognize this, that justice for black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. And that's uh, in this 1967 speech, where do we go from here? And black folk and those of us who organize and allies, uh, those of us who want to fight uh, racism and fight for uh, justice and society and equities, uh, have to go beyond just equity, but understanding that there's structural change that needs to be made. And we can talk about that in terms of uh, public safety, which would be law enforcement. We can talk about that in terms of how we deal with the issue of uh, jobs and, and making changes in the structural work that has to be done there in education. But structural changes um, has to be a dominant aspect of the work we do in organizing because we can't get it done. We can't build our the society that benefits us all uh, and with the structures um, in place as they exist primarily today. And, and that means that uh, we need to organize folks in our communities to understand that the structural changes that we need, we, we have to uh, fight for require uh, us to see some of the needs of the sacrifices that we have and deal with some of the issues of how we organize with each other. You know, uh, we all know, but more people need to understand that when we talk about public safety, we're talking about structural changes in the way public safety uh, uh, is uh, developed in our country and right here in Oakland. And social changes around issues of public safety means that we have a different outlook the way our community organizes with each other, when we deal with police, when we deal with city hall, when we deal with uh, uh, the education system, knowing what we're doing. So I think that understanding that legacy and understanding that capitalism doesn't reach the uh, changes that's necessary doesn't reach the uh, the uh, the kind of society that we want. We understand that we have to talk about structural changes and not trying to defend a system of economic oppression that uh, has caused so much of the evil of, of for us in the world today. Organizing on the streets and in the neighborhoods means understanding something about that, that uh, we're not dealing with emotionalism, we're not dealing with the moral values simply, but we're dealing with structural work in a political system that is oppressing us. And that work is different on a door-to-door, -door, knocking on doors, voting, uh, how we recognize the uh, individuals and programs that are going to make changes for us. I, I, I think that's an absolutely exposed. Thank you, Walter. Malkia, Devitt, Cyril, same question. Um, and I've got about 90 seconds here, but uplifting the radical legacy of King, what does that mean to you and how is it reflected in your work? Number one, we have to remember that Dr. King 
at the time was one of the most hated individuals, right, in in, in the country. Uh, you know, uh, the FBI director, William Sullivan, said we have to mark him now, right? If we haven't done so before as the most dangerous Negro of the future of this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro and national security, I believe we need to live into that legacy. We need to be dangerous to this system. Um, I think in order for us to be dangerous to this system, we have to demand a radical redistribution of wealth in America, but also a global redistribution of power uh, across the across the, the world. And so to, for us to lift up Dr. King's radical legacy today, um, we have to, we're going to have to go to jail probably. You know what I'm saying? We're going to have to put, as he did, our bodies on the line for our kin, for our freedom, for our future of a, of a world that, that is... Um, economically both secure but also fair um, this is this is what this is what a radical legacy means and I'm proud to be in it with you I'm proud to be in it with you too Malkia and Walter Riley thank you both so much for all of your work for your fight your sacrifice your commitment to our people um, it is an honor to be in relationship with you and I will see you all in the streets this week thank you so much for coming on the show today Thank you. My honor to be with all of you. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>